If you have your Bibles with you, again, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 17. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1045. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through this section of the Gospel of Matthew, and we've come today to the end of Matthew chapter 17. And I'm going to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, death and taxes, an unlikely combination. Matthew chapter 17. And we'll begin reading in verse 22. And this is what the Word of God says. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. There's an old saying that says that there is nothing certain in life except for death and taxes. And as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and as Jesus grows closer and closer to the cross, we come to a passage of Scripture, interestingly enough, that deals with two of life's certainties, death and taxes. But it is in these two passages that we see the submission of the Lord Jesus Christ on full display. He submits completely and fully to his Father's will, and he submits completely and fully to his Father's law. And through his submission, Jesus sets an example for all of us, and he transforms for all of us our understanding of death and taxes. So let's look at the text. And in verses 22 and 23... Let's see, first of all, the prediction of Jesus' death. Matthew writes, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Now the word gathering in verse 22 is unusual. And it suggests that there was a rendezvous point from which the group of disciples in Jesus would meet up together and they would begin their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover where all of Jesus' predictions concerning his suffering and death would be fulfilled. 
After the healing of the boy with the demon at the foot of the mountain, Mark says in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, that Jesus and his disciples went on from there and they passed through Galilee. And Jesus didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Luke, in his account of this passage, in Luke chapter 9, verses 43 and 44, says that while they were all marveling at everything Jesus was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, listen to what he said to them, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Let these words sink into your ears. This statement, this prediction of Jesus' death in verses 22 and 23 is actually the third prediction that Jesus makes in the Gospel of Matthew concerning his suffering. The first one was in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, where Matthew records that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, listen to the text, that he must Go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The second prediction came in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 12 as Jesus and Peter and James and John were coming down the mountain after the transfiguration of Christ when all of his glory was on display. And Peter, James, and John were questioning about what they had witnessed on that mountain and were wondering about Elijah's role. And Jesus responded to them in verse 12 of Matthew 17. And he said, I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man, listen to it, will certainly suffer many things. Do you hear the language? I must go to Jerusalem. I certainly will suffer at their hands. Now this third prediction in verses 22 and 23, it's similar to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. It's similar to Matthew chapter 17 and verse 12, but there is one important difference in the text. Do you see it? Jesus adds a statement in verses 22 and 23. He adds the idea that he would be delivered into the hands of men. I must go to Jerusalem. I certainly will suffer. And now I will be delivered into the hands of men. This word delivered is an important word. It means to hand over. It means to turn over. It means to give up a person and put them into someone else's hands. This is the exact same word that Matthew will use in Matthew chapter 26 to describe Judas's betrayal of Jesus. And here in this third prediction of his suffering, Jesus reveals to his disciples and to us 
that he not only must go, he not only certainly will suffer, but he inevitably will be betrayed and delivered up by someone close to him. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 to 19, Jesus will go on and declare that the chief priests and the scribes will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And later he will say, Judas is the one who will betray me. Now notice carefully in the text, with all this talk of certainty and suffering and being betrayed and delivered, there is a stark contrast that takes place in verse 23. Do you see it? It's a stark contrast between the disciples' initial response to Jesus' prediction of his suffering and their response here at the third prediction of his suffering. In case you've forgotten, let me read for you Matthew chapter 16 and verse 22 and the initial response of Jesus' prediction of his suffering on the cross. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Do you remember that? Jesus, there's no way that you can go to the cross. There's no way that you can suffer. There's no way that you can die. Far be it from you, Lord, that this would ever happen to you. And now look at verse 23. And they were greatly distressed. They were overcome with sorrow and sadness and grief. They were not just distressed, they were greatly distressed. This third prediction of Jesus' death completely unsettled and overwhelmed the disciples. Full of grief and sorrow and loss. And don't you see the picture that Matthew is giving us here? It's as if he is showing us that the disciples are growing. They're moving along in their faith and in their understanding. It's beginning to make sense to them what Jesus has been teaching them and what he's going to experience and what's going to happen to them. And they're distressed. They're grieved. But do you know what the Bible teaches about this? They still don't fully get it. Even though they're grieved, even though they're sorrowful, the Bible says that they still don't quite understand and they certainly don't understand talk of his resurrection. You say, well, how do you know that? I don't see that anywhere in Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23. You're right. You won't see it there. But if you go to Mark chapter 9 and his account of uh, this scene in verse 32, this is what Mark says about it. But they did not understand what he was saying. And listen, listen to what they did. And they were afraid to ask him. They didn't understand everything that Jesus was telling them and they were afraid to ask him. Luke adds a little more detail in Luke chapter 9 and verse 45. And he says, but they did not understand this saying, listen, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him anything about it. 
They were so grieved. They were so sorrowful. They were so overwhelmed by Jesus' words. They did not understand it, and they were afraid to talk to him about it. Do you know what's amazing about the text? Look at verse 23 clearly. They were so greatly distressed. They were so overwhelmed by what Jesus was telling them. They so lacked understanding. Do you see what they missed? Do you see it in the text? Do you see what they missed? They missed what he said about his resurrection. All they were thinking about was his suffering and his death and their loss. And they missed the hope of the whole statement. They missed his resurrection. He will be raised, the text says, on the third day. This same Jesus who would be falsely accused, who would be mocked, who would be beaten, who would be spit upon, who would be nailed to a cross, and who would be pierced in his side with a spear, is the same Jesus who would be raised in power and victory, and they missed it. And that's why they were overwhelmed. Do you know what this passage is teaching us this morning, friends? It's easy to miss it. It's easy to read it. I've had to think long and hard, how in the world am I going to preach a sermon on these two verses? You were probably wondering the same thing when we read the text. It's easy to miss it. But here's what I think Matthew is trying to emphasize for us. It's important for all of us to remember this morning that Jesus was neither helpless or passive in going to the cross. Jesus submitted to his Father's will completely, fully in going to the cross and dying. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 says this, And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, listen to what Luke says about Jesus. He would have known. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was locked in. He was focused on the cross. And when the time had come, he set his face to go to the cross. Do you know what he said to the people of his day in John chapter 10? One of the greatest Christological passages of Jesus Christ in his work as shepherd of the people of God. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he goes on in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. And he says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Listen to what he says next. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my Father. Full surrender. Full submission, setting his face to Jerusalem, setting his face to suffering, setting his face to the cross, and yet at the same time saying, I willingly lay down my life for the sheep. I have authority. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to raise it up again. This is no accident what is taking place in and through my life. 
I and the Father are one, and I delight in him, and he delights in me, and I am in full surrender to his will. And I'm dying for you. Do you see, friends? Can you see it in the text? Do you see? Matthew's not finished with the glory of Christ. He's showing you the glory of Christ after the mountaintop experience through his willing, full surrender and submission to the Father's will. And do you know who is right there with him in these accounts? Peter. The very one who said, far be it from you, Lord, you can't go to the cross. And do you know what Peter would do? And I'm going to be quoting Peter a lot through the rest of the sermon. This is the first of many. Do you know what he would do? He would go on in his first sermon after the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles. And in his first sermon, he would preach Christ and his glad surrender and submission to his father. And this is what he preached in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up. You hear the word? Delivered up. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus, in his submission to his Father's will, transformed death. Death could no longer hold him in the grave. And because Jesus transformed death, when you are in Jesus, Jesus transforms your death so that your death can't keep you in the grave because of Christ. And that's why Peter would say in this sermon that it will come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And just as certainly as Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, just as certainly as he suffered and died on the cross, just as certainly as he rose from the grave, it is so certain that if you will turn to Christ and call on his name and turn away from your sins, he will save you. It's that certain. It's that certain. And it's all, all of this glory of Christ, it's all caught up in his submission to his Father's will. And so I'll say to you today that you, you may be here this morning. You may find yourselves in a similar position as the disciples. You might be eager to come to church. You might be eager to listen to the sermon and to hear the singing and maybe even sing along and wonder what the crazy pastor is going to talk about and do. And you want to hear about Jesus, but you're like the disciples. You just don't understand. It doesn't all make sense to you. You think it should be one way. You think it should be your way. And everything you're hearing is telling you it's a different way. You think you should be able to get to heaven and get to Christ on your own. You think being a good person and doing good works and living a good life will take care of all of that. You've got 
you've got it all figured out in your own mind about how everything's going to go at the end, and yet you keep hearing things that are contrary to what you think. And you don't understand, and you're like the disciples trying to figure it out. Can I help you this morning? Can I just help you? Listen, listen to what the text says. You cannot understand. You can't. Do you know why you can't understand? There is a veil of your eyes. There's a veil over your heart, over your ears. And only the Holy Spirit of God can come in power and remove the veil and unclog the ears and open your heart so that it begins to make sense. And the way that happens, friends, is that you look at yourself and you compare yourself to the Word of God. And the Word of God says that every single person in this room, every single person that's ever born into this world has been born in sin. And sin is missing the mark of God's holiness and it's missing the mark of God's perfection. And the Bible says that sin separates us from a holy God because God is so holy, sin can't be in His presence. And so the moment that you are born in this world, you are separated from God, your Creator and Maker, because of your sin. And what I'm proclaiming to you this morning, what Jesus was telling His disciples, will never make sense to you until you first acknowledge and recognize that you are indeed a sinner. That you were born in sin, like every other person in this world has been born in sin, and that your sin separates you from God. And that you're guilty before a holy God. It'll never make sense to you until once you acknowledge your sin. Secondly, you turn away from it. There's a big theological word that we like to use called repentance. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning towards God. In your sin, you don't seek after God. You don't want God. You want to live your life. You want to live your plans. You want to do your thing. And your sin just moves you further and further away from God. And when you repent, you turn away from all of those things and you turn towards God. And see, once you recognize that you're a sinner, the natural next step is to repent of your sins. And then you confess them to God and you say the same thing that God says about you. And what God says about every single one of us in this room this morning is that we're sinners, we're separated from Him, we deserve to die for our sin, and unless we turn from our sin and come to Christ, we will die in our sin. You don't argue with God about whether or not you're a sinner. You don't argue with whether God's right or you're right. That's not confession. Confession is not arguing with God. Confession is agreeing with God. You say the same thing about you that God says about you. That is confession. You acknowledge that you're a sinner. You turn from your sins. You confess your sins to God. And you believe in Christ. You say, what does that mean? Well, that means that you recognize that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the Son of God. That he lived a sinless, perfect life on earth and that he died on a cross, not for his sins, but for your sins and for the sins of the whole world. And that he was buried for three days and he rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven and one day he's coming back. You believe all of that and then you believe in it. You say, well, what is believing in Jesus? It's just what I'm doing on this platform. 
I believe that this platform will hold me up. I exercise belief and faith in the platform when I step onto it. Believing in Jesus is not just acknowledging who Jesus is and what he said he would do, he did. It's trusting that what Jesus did for you on the cross is enough. It is enough to cleanse you and forgive you of your sins and make you right with God so that God would accept you and bring you into his family. You forget about trying to do things on your own. You forget about trusting in yourself and that all the good will outweigh the bad and everything will work out in the end. You forget about this idea that you got a different way uh, mapped out other than the Bible's way. You believe in Jesus and Jesus alone. You say, God, I know the only way I can go to heaven is through Jesus and what he did on the cross for me. And I'm laying everything else aside and I'm trusting solely in Jesus and Jesus alone. That is believing in Jesus. And the Bible says that when you acknowledge your sin, you repent of it, you confess it, you believe and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God will come to live inside of you in that moment. And when the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside you, you know what happens? The scales are removed. And things that never made sense to you before begin to be clear and begin to make sense. And you begin to understand them. And then you have a desire to live for Jesus. You're no longer just singing empty words to him. You're meaning every word you say. When you say, he is my delight and my reward, you mean it. And friends, let me just help you out. If you sang that verse today and you don't know Jesus Christ, your words were meaningless. You didn't mean it because you don't know him. How can he be your delight if you don't know him? How can he? Did you ever think of that? Am I the only one in the room thinking that? Let's be real. He transforms death and he'll transform it for you. But you got to do what Jesus did. You got to submit to God's word and God's will and God's way and not your own. Well, we not only see the prediction of Jesus' death. Let's look for a few moments about the payment of Jesus' taxes, verses 24 to 27. Here's an interesting fun fact for you. Matthew is the only gospel writer who writes about this account in verses 24 to 27. And in case you didn't know it, Matthew, before he met Jesus, he was a tax collector. So this really interested him on a personal level about getting taxes. And what we see in, in the payment of Jesus' taxes is a sudden question in verse 24. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And as Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, which was the hometown of Peter, tax collectors, Matthew says, approached Peter and asked him if Jesus paid the two drachma tax. Now, to understand... What's happening here? We have to go back into the Old Testament. And we have to go back to the book of Exodus. And we have to go back to Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 to 16, and the instructions that God gave to Moses regarding the tabernacle. And this is what God told Moses regarding the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 30. 
the Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. And everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. And when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Now, in case you missed what God instructed Moses to do, he told Moses to collect an offering of a half shekel for every male 20 years old and older, and that this tax should be used to fund and run the tabernacle. And this tax would later in the book of Nehemiah be used for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And God tells Moses that this tax is an atonement tax. It is a tax used to run the tabernacle and the temple so that the sacrificial system could take place and the sins of the people could be atoned for through the animal sacrifices. That's the history of it. Now, in our text, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew refers to it as the two drachma tax. Two drachmas were the equivalent of the half shekel. And that amounted to two days' wages for the ordinary worker. Now, there was all kinds of controversy over this tax. It made it difficult to study and research because uh, one source said something, another source contradicted it, and it was all over the place. But here's what I was able to deduce confidently. Some paid it annually, some paid it once for a lifetime, and others refused to pay the tax at all. And what was key about this tax, make sure you get this because it'll come up again in just a few moments, is that it was used to fund the sacrificial system in the temple. This tax, listen, it was a test of one's loyalty. It was a test of one's loyalty to the temple in Jerusalem, and it was a test of their patriotism towards the nation Israel. This tax represented a commitment to the function and ministry of the temple as an act of communion with God, and the tax was given as an offering to God. And so this tax was received right at the time of the Passover, at the height of the sacrificial system. And so tax collectors would go throughout the area in advance of the celebration collecting taxes. And that's what happened in Peter's hometown. Many believe that this was Peter's house where Jesus and the disciples were staying. And the tax collectors, the IRS of Jerusalem, showed up and knocked on Peter's door. Peter, does your master pay the two drachma tax? Now, if you've been following along in the Gospel of Matthew, you know this question from the tax collectors was not sincere. 
all of the religious elite and the people of Jesus' day had been trying and trying to trap him and to snare him. And that was what was involved in this question. They were hoping that Peter would say no, and they had something else to accuse him of. And do you know what I find so interesting that's missing in the text? Did you see it? Did you see what was missing in the text? I saw it. They never asked Jesus. Why? Oh, they tried that before. That didn't work out so well for them. So there was a sudden question. In verses 25 and 26, there was a striking response. He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, What do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Matthew doesn't tell us, but we can assume that Peter must have seen Jesus pay this tax before because he immediately and quickly, just as Peter would do, I'm sure you're not surprised by it, he immediately said, yes, of course, he pays the tax. But what Peter didn't realize is that when he walked into his house to tell Jesus about what had taken place, do you see it in the text? Jesus already knew. And so instead of Peter reporting to Jesus, Jesus asks Peter questions. And he says, what do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? And I love what the old English preacher J.C. Ryle said about this point in the narrative. He said, there is an eye that sees all our daily conduct. There is an ear that hears all our daily words. All things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Concealment is impossible. Hypocrisy is useless. We may deceive ministers. We may impose upon our relations and neighbors. But the Lord sees us through and through. We cannot deceive Christ. And so Christ knew it all. And in verse 26, you see Peter's answer from others. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. And there's something else amazing in the text. Do you see it? Jesus refers to Peter as a son. Now, what did he just refer to him as in Matthew chapter 16? Remember? Satan. And now he's calling him a son. Can you imagine how encouraged Peter would have been at that moment? I've lost the title of Satan. I'm now a son. So what does Jesus think about what's happening here? What does he think about the text and the tax? That's really the point, isn't it? All this other stuff is fun to think about, but the point is, what does Jesus think about this tax? Well, you find it in his questioning of Peter. Peter, do earthly kings tax their sons or others? Peter, do you know of any earthly ruler who taxes his own family to get rich? Or do they tax other people? And what does Peter say? Do you see it in the text? Others, Jesus. I'm, others. Others. What, what, why are you asking me that? And look at his response. Then his sons are free. They're free. Free from what? Free from the two drachma tax. 
works, free to live for God. Now, can I remind you this morning? Stay with me. This is really important. The one speaking is the one who claimed to be greater than the temple, the one who cleansed the temple, the one who predicted the destruction of the temple, and the one whom the Bible says is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and the one who will destroy the temple's sacrificial system through his once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And he says to Peter, I'm free, and so are you. Why was he free? Because he was destroying the temple. He was destroying the sacrificial system. And yet, yet, this one who is destroying all of that, this one who is free from the temple tax, as our representative, will pay the ultimate price for all of the temple's sacrifices, for all of the people, for all time on the cross. And on that day when he pays that price, he will render the temple null and void by tearing the curtain that separated the holy of holies from man's sin from top to bottom in one swift tear. And once and for all, it will all be over. And the writer of Hebrews, he understood this. That's why he said in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Done. Free. Free to have access to God. Free to trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Free from sin. Free from guilt. Free from shame. Free. But he's not finished. Look at verse 27. He ends with a surprising miracle. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Do you see the text? Even though he's free, what is he concerned about? Giving offense to others. And so Jesus pays the tax for himself and for Peter, even though he's free. The word offense that is used here really means scandal on. It's only used in the New Testament for something that causes a person to stumble spiritually and trip them up. Jesus knew that they were trying to trap him. And he knew, even though he was free, if he paid the temple tax, if he refused to pay the temple tax, it would cause people to stumble. So in his freedom, what did he do? paid the tax. Jesus submitted his rights to God and his law to avoid offense. This should strike a nerve for us, friends. We live in the land of rights. I have a right to do whatever I want to do. And who do you think you are to have the right to tell me otherwise? My rights. 
Can I just help us all this morning? If anyone, if anyone ever had rights, it was Jesus. And just in case you've forgotten, you're not him. I'm not him. He was free and he submitted. But look at what happens next. He, in the midst of his freedom and then submit, turning right around and submitting, only Jesus could do this, right? Look at the text. I mean, I'm not making this up. Only Jesus could do this. He displayed his glory one more time. And you say, how did he display his glory? Through a surprising miracle. Do you see it in the text? Oh, maybe you read over the text too quickly. Let me help you unpack the text. I want you to consider for a moment how grand and glorious this miracle really was. I want you to think about everything that had to take place for this tax to be paid the way it was paid. Jesus had to ordain that someone would drop a shekel, the exact amount of money needed to pay for him and Peter into the water, and that a fish would have to come by that area of water and scoop it up in its mouth without swallowing it all the way. And that fish would then have to swim to the part of the shore where Peter would be standing with a net or a hook or however he got it. And Peter would have to cast in where that fish was. That fish would have to take hold of the hook. Peter would have to retrieve the fish from the water, open the fish's mouth, and pull the coin out. It's a surprising miracle. It is a display of the glory of Christ. Tell me who else could do something like that? Only Jesus. Do you see it? Am I, am, am, I on, am I the only one in the room this morning seeing the power of this text? Do you see it? He is free. He is as free as free can be because he would go on to say, whoever the sun sets free is free indeed, and he was speaking of himself. So if you're free indeed, he's really free. And he's free, and yet he's submitting and in the midst of submitting, he's displaying his glory. Who else but Jesus could do that? Answer me that question. So, what does all of this mean? Well, I've got a few application points for us to consider. And I'll close with this. Now, I told you I was going to quote Peter. This is Peter and Jesus in the midst of this miracle. So who better to quote than the one who witnessed it all for himself? And by the way, let me just prepare you. If you have trouble with some of the things I say by way of application, as I quote the Bible, your problem is not with me. Your problem is with the Bible. Now, you might get mad at me and blame it on me, but just so we're on the same page, I'm not your problem. God is. Application number one. If the Son of God did not insist on his rights, but gave them up so as not to put a stumbling block before sinners, how in the world can you continue to insist on your rights and cause other people to stumble? How? 
say, you got a text for that? I do. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Live as people who are free. Do you hear it? Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Could he be clearer? Don't use your freedom as a cover-up to sin and live any way you want. Here's what I'll say to you this morning. If you're using your freedom as a cover-up, listen to me, you don't really know what it means to be free. Because when you're free, you don't want to cover it up anymore. Number two. If Jesus could provide for his own need and that of Peter, can he provide for you? What's that burden you're carrying this morning? What's that thing that's looming large over your life this week? If Jesus could provide for himself and Peter, he can provide for you. Application number three. If you're a Christian here this morning, remember that being a citizen of God's kingdom does not exempt you from responsibility to human kingdoms. In fact, your citizenship in God's kingdom gives you a special obligation to human kingdoms because those two belong to God and are ordained by Him, Romans chapter 13. By being a good citizen, you show love for your fellow citizens, even those who are lost and unjust. By being a good citizen, you show respect for God-ordained human government, even when its leaders are ungodly, corrupt, and oppressive. By being a good citizen, you show that you love God as well as your neighbors. Therefore, pay your taxes, not because you agree with everything our government supports, but because you are under law, and you want to live as a responsible citizen in this earthly kingdom for the spread of Christ's heavenly kingdom. Pay your taxes. Christian, even though your ultimate eternal citizenship is in heaven, you are obligated to fulfill your duties as a citizen of this world, except when it would cause you to disobey God and his word. And listen to me. Listen to me, church. Has not the events of the past year proven to you that there is coming a day when you're going to have to stand for God and for his word and for his kingdom, even if that means going to jail. And I just want to help you out. Your pastor will be the first one in line. You have to be willing to obey God above anything else. You got a text for that? I do. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Submit. Because you know, you know who you're really submitting to? Listen, who, who are you really submitting to? God. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. You thought that you chose presidents and kings and governors and leaders. 
Have you not read the book of Proverbs? God is the one who raises and elevates kings. So when you submit, you're submitting to him. Application number five. The supreme example of godly submission is Jesus Christ. Jesus submitted to suffering. He did not deserve from those who had no right to judge him in the first place. He committed no sin outwardly or inwardly, yet he submitted to corrupt sinful authorities, both religious and political. He took unjust abuse in order that he might seek and save the lost, and he is the example for every single person who calls him Lord. Do you have a text for that? Yes. First Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How did Jesus do it? He continued to surrender and submit himself to his Father who judges justly. How do you do it? You continue to surrender and submit to your heavenly Father who judges justly. This is not final judgment. Final judgment is yet to come and every single wrong in this world will be made right on that day. And you can count on that with certainty. The high king of heaven will rule and reign from his throne, and everyone will bow in submission to him. Application number six, final one. Those of you who are non-Christians in the room today, the coin that Peter retrieved from the fish was twice the amount needed for Christ. Christ wanted Peter to know that he paid his debt. And what I want you to know this morning is just as Jesus paid Peter's debt, he paid yours. If you'll acknowledge your sin, repent, confess, believe, and call on Christ today, he'll save you. He'll save you. He ransomed you, as Peter says in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 of 1 Peter, not with gold and silver, but with his precious blood. He died for you. So, as the old saying goes, there's two certainties, death and taxes. But as this passage shows, Jesus, in his submission to the Father's will and the Father's law, transformed our understanding of death and taxes. We submit to earthly authority unless it is in conflict with God's word for the spread of the gospel. And we submit to the will of God, even if it means death, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and death has lost its sting. And for the Christian, death is the entrance into the glory of God. And, by the way, when you die, you will never pay taxes again. So, welcome death in Christ. And if you don't know Christ, you should fear death. Because once you die, there's no other opportunity to know Jesus. Submission. Where 
do we need to submit to Jesus today? Let's pray.